Welcome back to Are We Doing This Right on WEGL 91.1 in Auburn. I'm Grayson. I'm Ezra. And this week we're talking about tours. You heard us right. Tours. Or tours. Please don't say it like that for the rest of the episode. Sounds good. I say tours. Okay. What's our first segment, Ezra? All right. Our first tour is, uh, would this be considered a tour of tours? All right. I'm done. Our first tour is uh, concert tours, of course. Uh, And, uh, you know, we all love music here. I'm sure you've been to at least one or a handful of concerts. I hope everyone out there has had an opportunity to go to at least one concert, whether it's symphonic, rock, pop, you name it. Uh, I think seeing live music is a pretty awesome experience. It's certainly a little bit different than just listening to it. But I wanted to look into where the idea of the concert tour comes from, how long it's been around, all that. So uh, first, uh, I couldn't get a super satisfying answer uh, on the real evolution of how like we got the modern concert tour. I couldn't find a real answer for where the idea of the concert tour comes from, but I was able to find a lot of historical things that sort of, uh, it looks like they kind of planted the seeds for the modern concert tour. So it all really started with these traveling musician troops. You had musicians who were uh, just kind of going from town to town in like the medieval ages, uh, just playing to the locals, getting money. Uh, You know, they would be pretty much existing entirely on donations. And uh, most of these people, it's what you think when you think of your classic Middle Ages bard. That was very much the lifestyle of these people. You had a couple, uh, they were very small groups usually. And they would almost always be performing songs either uh, political in nature or about just kind of like shared universal human struggles. And keep in mind, this is the era where if you didn't have like some sort of patron or someone like a rich person supporting you, you would just not be able to be a musician. So Absolutely. This was uh, a while before. I'm not talking about like the classical era. I'm talking mm-hmm. like... Uh, this is Surfed pre-Baroque. Them. Absolutely. Way pre-Baroque. But the next evolution there came in sort of the Baroque period. So in the early 1700s, what we think of as like a symphonic concert, that started to kind of take off. And you had a lot of wealthy individuals who, rather than the groups coming to them, they would come to the groups. If you're trying to see a symphony of 70 people, it's certainly a lot easier for the people to go to the concert halls and the venues for these people than the other way around. So you had wealthy individuals who wanted to see specific orchestras play specific music. Uh, however, most towns at these, uh, most bigger cities and towns at this time, they would be playing all of what the most popular music at the time would be. So if Vivaldi or uh, Bach had written a new symphony, it was only a matter of time before your local uh, concert hall would eventually get that music. So all the people who were wealthy and lived in these cities, they could go to the city closest to them to see the music that other people were talking about. Um, but, of course, these groups didn't travel. And specifically, I'm looking at the concert tour, not touring to the concert. So as you started to have uh, more and more artists studying music and more and more musicians uh, existing, as music became more accessible to just everyone, um, more and more cities started getting these local groups. They didn't really care who was performing it. They just wanted to see the music that they had heard a composer write for. So the next big jump uh, we really see is actually in the early like 1920s. So around this time, uh, music groups evolved because transportation evolved. You had trains, and so you would have local music groups going up and down entire train lines, and they would get off at each city, and they would perform there before going to the next one. They were kind of striving on novelty. These would be kind of your precursor to like your early jazz bands, your early mm. swing groups, very Roaring Twenties. This was very feasible because these musician groups were so much smaller than orchestras. It was very difficult to get an entire orchestra to go from one place to the other. That happened too, but it was a lot less common. You had a lot of these very small groups. 
But this all changed, of course, with radio. Because at that point, you were able to get a true musical following. It wasn't just like you were following Bach or Vivaldi. You wanted to hear the next symphony that Bach wrote. It was you wanted to hear the next symphony that the band you liked played. Uh, and this was all big band music. Uh, I'm sure you're more familiar with that than I am. Yeah, for anyone who's not familiar, I'm a trombone player, so it's kind of my thing. Absolutely. So in the 30s, you had uh, a lot of groups playing on the radio, and they specifically, it's like the people who were leading these big bands. They were like the face of it. Not even necessarily a musician, but more like the person in charge of them. Yeah, they kind of took this role that most, that like you have been saying, composers took before then. So a lot of times they would write some of the music themselves or they would be having people within the band composing the tunes that they're on. But it became, you know, Count Basie's orchestra, someone's orchestra. It was their project who they put together. Absolutely. And uh, one benefit we had, once you started getting these egos attached to these bands, it led to the first Battle of the Bands, mm. which actually happened in the uh, the late 30s. I thought that was really cool. I thought that was more of like a, a rock and roll kind of thing. But it was actually big bands that were having the first Battle of the Bands. Well, I mean, if you go back far enough, this is the precursor. So. Absolutely. So... In addition to big bands, you had the jazz groups, these small jazz groups going everywhere still. That was very common. And that, of course, paved way for rock and roll. A lot of the same groups and the same people who were interested in doing jazz were the people who ended up pushing and starting rock and roll. Of course, at this point, you started to get, uh, while rock and roll was developing, you had a lot of success with people like Ella Fitzgerald and Billie Holiday. They were some of the first prolific individual music stars. They were followed, of course, by Elvis Presley, the sort of face of rock and roll at the time. He made rock and roll into things that white people could like. So. Certainly. Uh, there's a whole, I honestly could do a whole segment on that. I spent a lot of time looking into that, but uh, <laughs> certainly a lot to uncover there. Anyway, uh, so Elvis Presley, of course, he did, I mean, undeniably, he led to this sort of explosion of rock that may or may not have happened without him. He, the genre became a lot more accessible because you had a face to it. And of course, we get our next big jump with a little band called The Beatles. There were a few smaller groups in between here and there, but the jump, Elvis was just, he had this crazy star power to him the same way The Beatles did. And, of course, they toured all over England for years uh, with their little rock concerts. But they really blew up stateside when they went to the United States and they performed on the Ed Sullivan Show. I was unfamiliar with this. I don't really know what the Ed Sullivan Show is. but it, It's a, a late-night talk show, so thank you, Jimmy Fallon of the day. So somebody interviewing celebrities, talking to people, that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And so they went, and I think it was in like the 19, like 1961, 1962, mm -hmm. they performed on the Ed Sullivan Show. And then they went back to Europe. They performed in Europe for a long time. Then in 1966, they came back to America. And by then, they were selling out stadiums. The, there was just a huge difference in popularity between when they were first introduced to America and the time they came back. Their last performance, actually, uh, right before the group disbanded, it wasn't intended to be their last performance, but they were on top of a roof in London and they performed a concert set. It lasted 42 minutes, and it only stopped because police officers started scaling the building. <laughs> Keep in mind, while the police were scaling the building, they continued to play and then started improvising lyrics about how their show was about to get shut down by the police officers. <laughs> but that was their last show. You know, the, the phenomenon that was the Beatles was no more after then. Not in the same way, not in the same capacity. You started that having the band members split up. 73? I believe so, yeah. Okay. So after then, you started getting, of course, the birth of the music festival and the most famous early music festival, Woodstock. You know, you had 400,000 people here. You had 32 bands. Uh, these were classics like The Grateful Dead, The Who, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix. Tons of incredible star power all at one event. 
And uh, people talked about Woodstock. I mean, people still talk about Woodstock. That was how influential this event was. You had other music festivals before and, of course, after, but none really had the staying power of something like Woodstock. An honorary mention uh, sort of in between these periods was uh, Bruce Springsteen's American Tour. It didn't really shape uh, how concert tours were done, but he did perform 115 shows in a year, which is just an absolutely mind-blowing number. No one else has really come close. Not, not someone of his, his star power. So the next big moment was David Bowie's Ziggy Stardust tour. And what made this so unique was because... Have you heard that album? Or are you familiar with it? I, I haven't listened to it. I know of it. It's very kind of... Ex- I mean, uh, like most of David Bowie's music, it's kind of experimental. It's kind of extravagant. And his concert shows reflected it. It was one of the first concert tours where it was less about the music and it was more about the show. Uh, he was very much a performer. You had these very extravagant sets. Uh, it was super elaborate. And then uh, another honorary mention, kind of in the same vein as his tour, you had Pink Floyd's The Wall. And on this concert, what they would do is at the beginning and uh, all the way to the end, they would gradually build this wall out of uh, large bricks of like cardboard and like wood, you know, prop bricks. And they would stack them all the way up until the band was covered. And then their finale, the wall would come crumbling down. Incredible. That is sick. Uh, So right after Pink Floyd's The Wall, you got the rise of, you know, hip-hop was starting to come into play. And the first hip-hop tour was, the first major hip-hop tour was actually with the Beastie Boys and Madonna. This worked very well because a lot of people, Madonna was very known at the time, because they were touring together with the Beastie Boys, it became a lot more accessible. And then right after that, you also had the Beastie Boys touring again with groups like Run DMC, A Tribe Called Quest, and Public Enemy. And this, they kind of paved the way for what became like the modern rap concert. So the next big jump in what a concert looks and sounds like uh, a little bit further in the future, and that was Coachella 2006. Are you familiar with what show I'm going to be talking about? No. Why 2006? That's that's far too specific. Daft Punk's Alive. Oh. This, they were at Coachella? They were. So they had done a show in 19, uh, 1997 called mm-hmm. Alive, which was in the same style where you had the two people behind Daft Punk doing these live remixes. But Coachella was different because it was just the scale of it was unrivaled. So EDM concerts had never really performed very well because you just had a person hitting play on a song that they had written. And that that did not get a lot of appeal. But what Daft Punk did in 2007 and 2006 at Coachella is they had this giant LED pyramid and the two robots were on top of it and they were doing live remixes on the spot. And on top of this, all of their music was perfectly synced up with this giant, very bright pyramid. And so you had, they had this tent at Coachella that was for 15 to 20,000 people, and they stuffed 40,000 people into it because once the show started, everyone at all the other spots at Coachella heard what was happening. People would say, like, you got to go check this out. Like, they're going to only be on set for a couple more hours, and more and more people crammed in there, and uh, it was the most popular event. So they then went on, and they did a whole tour across the country, but it completely changed the shape of not just EDM, but also the, uh, the showmanship of what a concert can look like. A surprisingly influential performance also happened in 2006 in the Grammys, not necessarily one I was a fan of, or I'm not a fan of the trend that it started. So another show in 2006 was Gorillaz, and you're familiar with them. They're they're like a 2D animated group. That's their whole stick. Uh, their, Their band members are not real, so to speak, even though you have real people backing them up. Well, they performed a hologram show with a hologram Madonna, uh, and then halfway through the set, uh, the real Madonna came on stage and performed with the holograms. 
And this has led the way to a trend that's becoming increasingly popular now, and that's the idea of a hologram concert. So this was, you see this today with groups, uh, specifically a lot of J-pop groups like Hatsune Miku, uh, as well as um, you had Splatoon's Off the Hook uh, recently did one with an opening set featuring Animal Crossing's K.K. Slider. Personally, I'm not a huge fan of the idea of a holographic concert, but it was a trend that really was first really seen in 2006. So, of course, following something like Alive 2007, the scale of concert tours got a lot larger. A couple of honorable mentions are uh, Kanye West's Life of Pablo tour, where the stage had a mosh pit underneath it. It was a floating platform, not directly connected to anything else other than some cables to the ceiling. You had uh, Lady Gaga performing a show with a three-story light-up stage, which cost over a million dollars for each setup. And there was a U2 concert, which, of course, had... It cost $23 million every time they set it up because their stage was full 360 degrees and it was absolutely massive. So, of course, concert, uh, the, the venues for concerts and the ways musicians choose to present their music, it's continuing to evolve as time goes on. And uh, I'm sure we're going to see some absolutely crazy shows in the next few years. When we come back, Influencer Tours. Welcome back to Are We Doing This Right? Okay, so I hate the word influencer so much. Absolutely. Um, throughout this, I'm not going to be calling them influencers. I'm going to be giving them the benefit of the doubt and calling them content creators because I think that's a much nicer term. Influencer is very commonly a pejorative. But um, when we talk about tours, it's commonly about musicians, like you said, or comedians or even like touring productions of plays. But that has changed dramatically over the last 10 years. And there's been a whole new segment of the industry that's opened up. This new form that emerged is a creator tour. So you've got somebody who's notable on social media, who's going to stages and doing their thing, whatever that thing may be. This is only possible because of the rise of the internet and how people gain platforms nowadays. And I want to spend a segment talking, like breaking that down, talking all about that. So I was looking for the first YouTuber tour when I went through this. Um, you see them very commonly now, but I was trying to see exactly how far back they went, how far back we could expect to see them. And it's unclear. Uh, there's the first one, the common number is 2011, but that's the first YouTube back tour. And I can't tell if there's smaller ones that happened before that. This is difficult to research because all of your sources are either like 10-year-old YouTube videos or they're like long-defunct forum posts that you might be able to find on like archive.org. This stuff wasn't commonly paid attention to back in the day. It was much smaller, especially on YouTube. Everything was a lot smaller. So it leads to this problem. What tour was that in 2011? Uh, That's called Digitour. Uh, It's a combination of a music tour, an improv show, and a meet and greet, which features people from not just YouTube, but across social media. That first one in 2011 was backed by YouTube. It was sponsored by them, and it actually kicked off, I'm pretty sure, at their Mountain View campus. What was so revolutionary about that one and why that's so commonly cited as the first one or kicking off that trend is that Digitour was the first time that people realized, hey, we could do the kind of thing we do for musicians for YouTubers. It was the first time that the the establishment, the industry, took these creators seriously. And it was the first time that they had serious might put behind getting them on the road, getting them into venues with stages and everything. 
it almost reminds me about, uh, you know, how people would go and they would see like TV shows that are filmed in front of a live studio audience. It seems like a similar appeal. Exactly. It's, it's very similar. Digitor, their other thing, like you mentioned with the show, was that they realized that you couldn't just put an influencer on stage. They realized that you could have more than just the meet and greet part, right? So they, uh, they would put resources into helping to train the influencer to create a better show for the people that showed up and to create more value behind the ticket. And once they had this first very successful tour, they've been doing better and better every year on their Wikipedia page. But after they did that first successful tour, the rest of the industry kind of followed suit and realized that they could pull a similar thing with all the other people on this platform. Keep in mind, the other thing that helps this is that most of these creators are relatively independent. Um, they might belong to something called a multi-channel network that kind of acts like a manager or an interme intermediary between them and YouTube. But at the most part, it's just an individual contract with the person on stage. So it's far easier for the person that's trying to promote their tour as far as business goes. There's fewer people that you have to go through. There's fewer things that you have to schedule, you know. It's a much simpler industry as far as they are concerned. So the tours outside of the DigiTour, um, DigiTour is a group of people. So they generally have five to six. Uh, other tour groups, like I said, have come in and started promoting single YouTubers. Uh, generally, these aren't vloggers, but they're people more who do like activities or challenges on their video. Uh, the one that I saw recently when I was researching this that seemed like it would actually be a really fun show was Dude Perfect. So you know the guys who do like basketball trick shots and stuff? Absolutely. Their entire show is like them competing against each other and doing like fun challenges. And that seems like it would be a really fun stage show, you know? Absolutely. This is also the segment that shows like, uh, it's called Brain Candy Live. Are you familiar with it? I have seen Brain Candy Live. Okay, it's so talk the only me through what goes on during the show. Well, that one in particular... Uh, you had, uh, it wasn't, it, I believe it was Vsauce and... Uh, Adam Savage. Adam Savage, yeah. Uh, they were basically, it, it was the idea of science is fun applied to a live show. And so they were doing very much the same kind of content that they're associated with, but it was presented in a way that was very engaging to the audience. And I think they would even answer specific questions you had if they happened to have the information to answer them. Right. That's my favorite outcome of this like rise of YouTuber or influencer tours. Because you finally get something that's actually, okay, this content would have never made it to any sort of stage or live platform without this being a thing. You know, I don't think that would have existed had they not already had the, had the platform that they had on YouTube and in Adam Savage's case with his TV career. Yeah, it was certainly more akin to something like, a, like an educational video than uh, anything you'd ever really normally see live. That was one of the goals um, back to Digitor when they were interviewed by BuzzFeed News. A thing they talked about is that they wanted to create it so it would be like a YouTube video on stage and bringing that kind of energy to a live environment. And I think that has, by and large, been a successful thing. Now, we do see things that aren't as, in my opinion, entertaining as this, which is mostly just, oh, we found a random vlogger stage show here they go or just like the one i saw when i was looking up one of the modern digitor ones was just a guy from instagram who is mainly just his fans showing up there to meet him which i understand the appeal of but i am less likely it, it's harder to defend from my point of view certainly it seems like at that point you're cashing in on fame rather than using it as a platform to share new content 
I think that's the problem when people see like influencer tours, all they see is that the ones that they see is just like, Oh, this is just like a person cashing in on this and not all the people who are doing really cool work or like even musicians who started up on YouTube and who get music tours through this platform. I think people don't recognize legitimacy enough because that side of it exists, which is not it's doing it a disservice. Now, the other big segment that I really like from these that really didn't exist before this again, podcast tours. Okay. Now look, I not to be, um, I guess what's the word pompous, but I really like podcasting. I really like talk radio and I listen to a lot of them. They translate weirdly well to stage shows. Have you ever gone to one of these? Actually, yeah. Which one? Well, I went to a, I went to a similar one with a radio show. Okay. Like, I count that. Yeah. Same, same style. But you would think that pe- just people talking wouldn't translate to the stage, but it does it fairly well, especially when shows are semi-interactive. One of my favorite like comedy entertainment podcasts is called My Brother, My Brother, and Me. If you haven't ever listened to it, you should. It's great. Um, what they do is they take listener questions and they answer them or they try to answer like questions from uh, Yahoo Answers. They're like an advice column, but as a podcast. They're extremely funny. And they started doing this stage show where they would take in from that specific cities the people who were going to see them, questions from them. And then the second half of the show, they actually set up mics in the crowd so that people can line up and ask them questions live on stage. That sounds inherently very interesting. Uh, bringing, it's almost like bringing participation to a podcast format in a way that's not normally feasible. Yeah, it, it extends the medium in a really cool way. This also counts as a podcast. So I get to listen to this after the fact and listen to how good they are even when they're not edited down and them interacting with the crowd. It's like it, it's a different dimension to the same show. The same goes even for less interactive podcasts. This still works out fairly well. Um, you see uh, Hank and John Green, they do a podcast called Dear Hank and John. John does one called The Anthropocene Reviewed. They do all of these as live shows generally together, but it's that same kind of energy. You get that small amount of interaction from the crowd, but even then, just them putting on that performance and being able to do it, it's it's a very fun tour. And again, that's another thing that people, they they discount them unnecessarily in my opinion. People see, oh, that's a podcast on stage. That must be dumb without giving it a chance. And I think that's really doing it a disservice. I think there's, there's certainly something to be admired about the fact that these content creators can still create their content when they're not, they don't have the benefit of being edited. You know, you can see it without any sort of magic. Well, I, yeah, I think at the end of it all, it's, it's expanded a live medium. Okay, stage performances in a way that we had never seen before and wouldn't have been possible before online content. And I think it's going in really cool directions and it's going to continue to go in those directions as look, I'll be honest. Eventually I think the, you know, less interesting tours are going to die off. Like there's a lot of money in it, but I think we're going to see less and less of them. Certainly has a lot less staying power. Yeah. All right. So when we come back, the tour de France, Welcome back to Are We Doing This Right? Okay, so uh, I saw that look you gave me when I said Tour de France, and I don't blame you. This is certainly not an event that I previously, prior to researching for this segment, it's not something I knew a ton about. Yeah, we're both huge bicycle racing fans. Absolutely. 
Of course, uh, what little we do know about Tour de France is it's probably the most important bicycle race to happen every year. I say it's the only important bicycle race to happen every year, but I don't necessarily want to offend any bike nerds out there. <laughs> that being said, you know, I, it's not something I follow super well, which is part of why I found it kind of interesting. I mean, mm-hmm. certainly I know nothing about it except that people are on bicycles and that it looks kind of long. Yeah. But uh, some specifics for you. Uh, for those of you who are not up to date on what France is up to these days. So the Tour de France is a multiple stage race consisting of riders on teams. Uh, by, uh, the teams are usually of eight bicyclers and they travel roughly 2,200 miles in 21 day long segments, which is so a lot of miles. So that's a little over 100 miles a day? Yep. I believe usually the race is run over 23 days, so I believe there are some days where uh, the cyclists are not cycling, but on the days that they are cycling, they are cycling a little over 100 miles a day. Of course, you know, it, uh, a more mountainous segment of the race is going to be less distance and so forth, mm-hmm. usually. But the winner of the Tour de France, as of recently, they receive 450,000 euros or the equivalent of 495,000 United States dollars. Of course, in addition to all the sorts of sponsorships and other things on top of that, specifically before that exact amount was decided on, there were a couple of years where they gave really weird prizes instead. In 1976, you got a nice apartment. Uh, In 1988, the prize was a car, 500,000 francs, and a piece of art that they had. But after 1998, France got their senses back and they started giving the racers money instead. Anyway, so the Tour de France is unique in in that the length of the race remains approximately the same every year, but the route that they take is different. There's a lot of variance. The Tour de France has never been run the same way twice. Another consistent thing is every, every race since 1975, they've always concluded it on the same street in Paris so that people can gather there and cheer for their favorite cyclist. Another thing I didn't realize is the race often features them traveling up and through the European Alps, which of course is incredibly, incredibly difficult. So the times for your, your score, it's determined by the cumulative time of your team for each day. So if even if you have a cyclist who comes in first on some days and their team does not do as well on other days, the total cumulative time is what matters, not who crosses the finish line at the end. So because each stage uh, has very different terrain, you know, you have uh, they're actually referred to as like mountain stages versus like flat stages or sprint stages. You have actually like sort of like side challenges, side awards given to certain people for accomplishing certain things. So you have one for the best sprinters, which are the best the people who tend to do more who tend to do stand out on their own when they're competing on flat terrain. You have the best climbers who are doing the best on the mountainous terrain, and of course you have the best young riders, anyone who's competing in the Tour de France under 26. Anyway, so the Tour de France has been run since 1903, and the entire event actually got its start in an attempt to promote the sales of a then failing newspaper called Le Auto. Uh, I don't speak French. I would assume that's the car. I believe so. Since the beginning, it's always consisted of 21 sprints, and it's been run every single year that France hasn't been in a world war, which is to say most years. <laughs> there are a few other consistent traditions with the Tour de France. Uh, one of this, one, the, I guess the most important, really, is that the rider with the lowest cumulative finishing time at the end of each stage receives the yellow jersey for until they are no longer the person with the best cumulative time. Uh, And at the beginning of each stage, the person in the yellow jersey always leads the pack. It's something that, uh, as a spectator, it's very obvious to tell. It's like, oh, that that team did very well yesterday. 
and you can see what they're doing the next day. You've also had a handful of incidents throughout history where you had specific riders who had the yellow jersey the entire race. The last time this was done was actually 1935, but that's incredible to think that someone could hold the lead for all 21 days of the Tour de France. Anyway, the guy who wore the yellow jersey in 1935, by the way, he wasn't French, he was Italian, and that brings me to my next point. I guess I didn't realize to what extent Tour de France was more than just a French event. It's very much comparable to something like the World Cup in the sense that you have a lot of other countries competing. So, of course, I'm sure you're curious about how the United States has done. Well, we have one uh, victory in the Tour de France, and that is Greg LeMond. Do you know why we only have one winning person? Oh, yeah, I do. That is because our other winner is not considered one anymore. And that gets me to a very, very large part of the Tour de France and what I think we will probably spend the remainder of the segment talking about, and that is doping. Doping scandals on Tour de France actually has its own Wikipedia page. Oh, jeez. And it goes way back. Can you guess when the first Tour de France doping scandal was? 1972. Close. 1903. Oh, the Tour that, de France, that's not close. <laughs> the Tour de France started in 1903, and the first <laughs> doping scandal of the Tour de France was in 1903. Originally, uh, the riders would consume either alcohol or uh, diethyl eth- ether. Diethyl ether, yeah. That's, You're familiar it's a, with that? It's a sedative, if I remember correctly, or it's a painkiller? Actually, it's a uh, fuel. It's a volatile, flammable liquid. But if consumed, even in incredibly small doses, its effects can be similar to that of alcohol consumption. So you had uh, racers consuming this. It's a lot more dangerous than alcohol, I might add. So, okay, walk me through why you would want to be racing drunk. The idea is that if you're cycling for multiple days, hundreds of miles each day, kind of hurts. Okay. And if you're a little bit drunk, it hurts a little bit less. So (laughs) this actually cracked me up. Doping was legal in the Tour de France all the way up until the 1940s. In the official rulebook for the Tour de France in 1930, the rulebook reminded the contestants of other countries that although the Tour would be providing things like water, they would need to be providing the drugs they wanted to take themselves. (laughs) And in the middle years, uh, actually, you had riders who would be, instead of just like drinking alcohol, they would be actually taking cocaine as a performance-enhancing drug during the Tour de France. This started becoming a problem. Not just for the obvious reasons, but you actually had a handful of riders who would end up severely injured because, understandably, they were on a lot of drugs and attempting to bicycle hundreds of miles across France. One specific incident, you had a rider who couldn't operate the brakes on his bike fast enough due to all the painkillers in his body, and he rode off of a cliff. And another incident, so while the amount of drugs you were allowed to consume on the Tour de France was not limited at the time, the amount of water you could consume was. You were allowed four bottles of water per leg of the race, which was certainly dangerous. Yeah, uh, they didn't really understand hydration at the time. But specifically, you had a contender, Tom Simpson, who had previously been seen earlier that day drinking large amounts of brandy. The issue here is you are cycling, you are dehydrated, and you only have four bottles of water. Of course, which he was out of, and he has a lot of brandy in his system. Which is a dehydrator. Absolutely. So in Tom Simpson's case, he started zigzagging across the road, and he fell into an embankment. And his team members get him out, and they're like, hey, Tom, you know, you're you're not looking so good. You don't need to keep riding. And he's like, no, I got this. He gets back up. He rides forward for about 500 meters, falls unconscious, never lets go of the bike. Keep in mind, he is unconscious. He still has like a rock-hard grip on the bike, and then he, he died in that moment. He was taken to the hospital and he was declared dead. 
So after incidents like this, there were a lot of incidents like this, but after incidents like this, the race began to crack down on drugs. And part of this had to do with the fact that drug testing was starting to become more technologically feasible. Doctors were finding better ways to test people for what drugs were in their system so that they could enforce this standard across the board. But they started discouraging the racers from taking amphetamines. And as the tests improved, the riders were able to get away with less and less. Of course, uh, modern doping in the Tour de France is very similar to that of other sports. And this is, of course, most prominent in America's previous winner, Lance Armstrong. In Lance Armstrong's case, he actually failed a drug test in one of his first races in 1999. But when they caught him on it, uh, he had an illegal hormone in his system. That's how they detected it. However, he said that it was because of a doctor-prescribed ointment that he had and that he hadn't been doping, and he got away with it. Until 2005, when, believe it or not, the modern iteration of Le Auto published an expose <laughs> on Lance Armstrong claiming that they had evidence. They had tested his urine, and they had confirmed that uh, he had, in fact, been doping. And at that point, uh, all his victories were stripped of him, and he was banned for, for life from competing in the Tour de France. Armstrong denied the charges, but he admitted, them, he admitted to them later in an interview that he had with Oprah. Now, here's the kicker. So, of the 21 podium finish finishers who finished with Lance Armstrong, 20 of them were also caught doping. Huge respect to uh, Ferdinando Escarton, <laughs> the only person on the podium who did not... He did not have any issues doping in the Tour de France. Good job, Ferdinando. Anyway, since then, they've tried to crack down more and more on doping. But, you know, with scandals continuing to go on in the Tour de France, and we're starting to see more and more of them in the Olympics and other global sporting events, who knows where the Tour de France will go from here. When we come back, Backlot Tours. Your best friends won't be your friends Welcome back to Are We Doing This Right? So backlot tours are something that people are only really familiar with now from mostly theme park rides, but they have a long-running real counterpart um, as far back as the silent film era. So in the early 1910s, when Universal Studios first moved to California, they were originally from New York, uh, they hosted a party on their new studio property. Um, at the time, land was really cheap and buildings were really cheap to build there. So the studio industry was increasingly moving out there to save money and for a variety of other reasons as well. That initial party was such a large success that they continued to let people uh, visit the property for a 25 cent admission price. Um, even to the point where bleachers were set up to where people could sit and were encouraged to cheer on the heroes of the stories. Um, keep in mind, this is still silent film era, so... While this might have been disruptive, it wasn't really a, a huge problem from the finished film standpoint. That all started changing when talkies became really commonplace. As soon as that happened, these sorts of tours and this sort of um, and this sort of show aspect of filming movies was phased out and wouldn't reopen for another 30 years. So in the mid-50s, we started getting television, which caused a lot of problems for the traditional Hollywood movie studios. You know, people were increasingly not going to movie theaters because they could buy this device once and get all the entertainment they wanted for free over the airwaves. In order to save money, movies were increasingly filming on location instead of building these huge sets that you could easily control in a backlot. And so the backlot started to be phased out by a lot of large old Hollywood studios. This was what spurred on Universal's first attempt at trying to monetize their backlot and to make some additional revenue off of it. So... Uh, 
for a small fee, they would allow bus companies who had up to that point been giving bus tours of celebrities' home to tourists in the Hollywood area, uh, they would be able to come onto the premises. Um, Universal also used this as a way to make more money by selling more lunches at the studio commissary. They eventually even started using this as an advertising opportunity. Uh, the bus drivers would be given hand-typed script by Universal employees that were not only showing things around, but they were also saying, like, here's the new movie that's being filmed. Listen up, that kind of thing. In the early 60s, this was upgraded and Universal decided to bring this all in-house. Uh, they created these red and white open-air trams that they called the Glamour Trams in order to run these tours. Uh, this came after an acquisition of Universal by MCA, and they were trying to revive that image of old Hollywood that a lot of people held so like dearly in their hearts from the 30s and 40s. So the original um, Glamour Tour that lasted a long time was 90 minutes through the backlot and would stop at the commissary again because you still wanted to sell those extra lunches. Over time, the tour expanded and expanded and expanded, including um, showing things like early effects, the sword costumes, and even actual movie stars. One of the bigger draws of the tour was that you could you were on a live set, so to speak, and you could actually see the people that were there to film. Um, the tours would sometimes change day by day or even hour by hour to get as close to the action as possible, and they prided themselves on being the closest you could get without working in the filmmaking industry to actual filmmaking happening. Now, like I said, this expanded over time, and Universal started adding more and more to it, and they started building more theme park-like elements around their studios. That whole saving money by not using backlots things never really went away. Um, it's still a problem to this day, and backlots aren't really built the same way they used to be. So this is where we see the eventual transition to Universal's first theme park, Universal Hollywood Studios. And it's where we get the reputation now that um, these studio backlot tours are something for theme parks. The current iteration of the tour within Universal's Hollywood Studios is still in the spirit of the original tours. Now, the studios aren't really active anymore, so it's more of a historic tour than anything else. And it's definitely not their most popular attraction, but they still stay with it. Where I think these get really interesting is when you get down to the parks in Orlando in the late 80s. Now, this was when uh, Disney was trying to build their third gate. They were under the leadership of Michael Eisner at the time. They had the idea for a pavilion within Epcot that was originally meant to be about movie making, but under Eisner's direction, that became its own park, MGM Studios, now known as Hollywood Studios. This is also around the same time that you see Universal looking to expand into, uh, into the Orlando area with Universal Studios Florida with the same general idea for their entire park. These parks were to be themed around movie making, and they were both to contain actual studios. In the early days, Universal also had its much smaller studio tour, but that was gone within five years of the park's opening in 1995. So Disney was originally looking to build this more as what Universal Studios was kind of in the beginning, a big studio that just happened to have a backlot tour and a place for tourists to see what was going on, maybe a few smaller activities, but certainly nothing like their other theme parks. This was not a place for roller coasters and that kind of thing. And that's what they went through with. The original park opened up as mainly a studio space that you could go see, and also a tram tour and some other smaller rides, but also food, that kind of thing. The original Disney tram tour was something that you would never even come close to seeing in a modern Disney park. 
It was a two-hour tram tour of the active studios and the animation department. The ride went through set areas of recent Disney films, facade houses that you would see on like TV sets, that kind of thing. And it also started featuring more interactive elements like a disaster scene that totally wasn't ripped off from Universal Studios and a miniature water battle where they were filming what would have been in miniature ships that were for a war movie, so to speak. Um, the ride was also originally followed by a one-hour unskippable walking tour, which would have caused a lot of problems if you could imagine the families at Disney who had gone there expecting a short tour, and then they also have to walk for an hour after taking a two-hour tram tour. Originally, this park, uh, it was struggling. It saw higher than what they expected in terms of popularity, but at the same time, that came with a lot of complaints that there wasn't a ton to do and that the tram was too long. And so over time, they started moving away from this mentality. This also coincided with outside pressure about the studios being impractical to film at. Orlando was really far away from a lot of things, and people didn't want to film right next to an active theme park. So over time, Disney moved away faster and faster from the original studios concept to more of like Universal Studios in Hollywood, kind of a park themed around filmmaking, but not necessarily a place where filmmaking happened. And the studios parts and the tram tour were the first to take the hits of that happening. So as things were chopped from the tram tour, especially the walking area that was the streets of America for a long time, the general shortening to make it a more accessible ride, and the splitting off of the walking tour into a completely separate uh, attraction, uh, it was eventually whittled down to 35 minutes. And this held on for a surprisingly long time. The studio's didn't stay around that long. They were held back or they were moved off premises a long time before, but the the ride itself managed to hang on until 2014. Uh, I actually got it to ride it once back in the day and I remember thinking it was incredibly cool, but I only got to ride it that one time. I don't think we'll be seeing anything like this again, not just from the standpoint of parks about movie making don't work, but I think just from the standpoint of people aren't looking for this kind of attraction. You know, when they go to theme parks, they're looking more for roller coasters, more for exciting shows, that kind of thing. And this doesn't really fit that bill. And I really think that's a shame. Well, that's our show for this week. Thank you for listening to Are We Doing This Right? You can listen every week on WEGL 91.1 in Auburn on Sundays at 3 p.m. You can also listen on our website at WEGLFM.com or on your smart speakers. Just say listen to WEGL 91.1. You can also listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Are We Doing This Right? I'm Grayson. I'm Ezra. Thank you for listening.